Blog Talk Radio. We've had a doozy of a day, sure. We've had a doozy. <laughs> Welcome to In the Closet Objectivist. And with me is, of course, Alan Tudyk. Not really. Um, uh, gosh, um, I have to apologize for skipping out last week, last Wednesday. Um, I It's one of those days where you're you're so busy you you might inhale and inhale a handful of crackers and that's like all the nourishment you have time for is that kind of a day and then Thursday I got an update on Corey's situation Corey of course the man who invented in the closet objectivist um of which I am just a humble co-host um my name is Maggie Rivens by the way in case anyone's wondering um yeah so um I'll, I included um, a link in the blog talk notes now included on our Facebook group in the Closet Objectivist. Um, you can go to, um, the link is to um, Meal Train, so you can help out Corey's family by donating to the Meal Train um, so they don't, among all of their other um, things they have to worry about. Um, Making dinner doesn't have to be one of them. Um, it's a really nice service, and Rachel's very good, uh, sorry, Corey's wife is very good about um, giving updates. Um, so yeah, you'll you'll see why I just really didn't have the heart to do a show last week. Um, but I decided to suck it up and do it today. I'll be perfectly honest. I got about two hours of sleep last night. So no idea if any of the following is going to be even slightly coherent. Um, so with all of those caveats in mind, um, let's, uh, let's talk about terraforming Mars and why it's not a complete waste of time. I mean, the, the main... So terraforming is um, to take the planet Mars, which in many ways is the most um, Earth-like of all the planets within our solar system, other than, of course, Earth, um, and, and make it more Earth-like. Um, so the argument that's usually advanced is called the doomsday argument. If something unpreventable and catastrophic happens on Earth, at least there will be humans and other life elsewhere, sort of putting our eggs in more than one basket. Um, now, it's, it's true that the most massive celestial body, and therefore the one with the greatest gravitational pull between the asteroid belt and the sun, is Earth. To be honest, I have a hard time featuring human beings not noticing and or not being able to prevent something so catastrophic. And furthermore, I think there are a lot more positive reasons to terraform Mars than preventing our own extinction. So I'm going to kind of lay out my reasons, which are uh, a little bit more involved and a little bit more nuanced, but you know, hopefully I'll convince you that it's not a complete waste of time. Um, so I'm going to frame it in the challenges of making Mars more Earth-like and therefore more hospitable to human beings and other life from Earth. Um, so the first thing is that Mars is about a quarter of the, the volume and 10% of the mass of Earth. And what are, what are the consequences of this? Well, the gravity 
on Mars' surface is only about 38% that of Earth. It means that lighter gases such as water vapor, oxygen, and nitrogen, um, sorry, H2O, O2, and N2, um, have an easier time reaching escape velocity. As I understand it, this goes a long way to explaining why um, Mars was thought to have a lot of liquid water features early in its history, um, but as water evaporates, some of those molecules floated away from the planet rather than condensing and returning to the liquid and solid phase. Uh, gaseous water absorbs um, infrared photons, heat. So the loss of atmospheric water probably contributed to Mars' surface becoming colder and colder, um, and temperatures and pressures falling below the line in the phase diagram where liquid water is possible. Sorry, that's super technical. Let me explain. So in chemistry, um, for a given molecule, there's what, what's called a phase diagram. Um, so you've got temperature on one axis and pressure on the other axis. And the graph kind of shows you where, given a certain temperature and pressure, you would find that molecule either in the um, liquid, solid, or gaseous phase. And there are lines kind of where, you know, if it goes from gas to solid, it's called, or sorry, solid to gas, it's called sublimation. Um, if it goes from um, liquid to gas, it's called evaporation, et cetera. So um, Mars is, Currently on the surface of Mars, it's usually at a, it's very cold and very rarefied, very low pressure, certainly not where you would find liquid water on the surface. Um, so <laughs> I completely bored my audience already. I groove on this stuff. I think it's interesting, but I realize I may be the only one. Um, so, right. If we're terraforming for the long term for millions of years, and let's be honest, this is not a small project, we'll have to thicken Mars's atmosphere with heavier molecules than just water vapor, oxygen, nitrogen, um, et cetera. And the life of nitrogen is a real problem that and really the only scientists I've ever seen address this is um, one of my graduate school committee members, um, and of course, because I am so exhausted, I am completely blanking on his name. He's like the nicest man ever. That is so, so embarrassing. Um, but, you know, there, there's sort of this motto in um, NASA called follow the water. And that's not crazy. There are so many great reasons why water is the solvent of life. And if anyone's wildly curious about the chemistry reasons, I can spend an episode talking about that. But... Um, following the water is not, not a silly thing to do, but let's face it, life as we know it requires nitrogen. DNA is made of nitrogenous bases. Proteins have, are made of amino acids, all of which have amine groups. In other words, ammonia covalently bonded to carbon. Um, yet Mars' atmosphere has about, well, I don't know, 4,000 times less nitrogen, so even if we could use something like the Haber-Bosch process or the rhizosphere to fix atmospheric nitrogen into fertilizer for plants and microbes to grow, um, there wouldn't be a whole lot of raw material to work with. Long term, you'd have to aim 
something like ammonia-laden asteroids or rockets full of poached atmosphere from Saturn's moon Titan to have enough nitrogen for life to work with. Um, so it's a, it's a unique engineering problem. Our atmosphere is about 80% nitrogen, and two, and, and um, so we've, we've got a lot to work with, and, and even so, um, nitrogen comes at a huge premium. You know, I mentioned the Haber-Bosch process, and if you're interested in learning more about it, there's this great book. It's on Audible. It's called The Alchemy of Air, and it talks about um, um, the invention of the, of the Haber-Bosch process of fixing atmospheric nitrogen, because before this existed, um, you know, around, oh gosh, I think it would have been around World War One. this is invented, um, we were really using up all of the world's guano, um, like bird droppings, as fertilizer to get rich sources of nitrogen. It was a real, we were headed towards like a real food shortage crisis. As a result of the Haber-Bosch process, um, we're able to fill rough feed, excuse me, roughly a billion more people. Um, I mean, literally no invention has been more of a boon to humanity than the Haber-Bosch process. And it's tragic that so few people have even heard of it. Um, so, yeah, it's, you know, even in a planet where there's tons of nitrogen just floating around in the air, you know, converting that to something life can use is not trivial. Now, when you don't have a lot of nitrogen to begin with, as you do on Mars today, um, the challenge becomes even greater. But I, I think it will redound positively on how we deal with with a relatively abundant but desperately needed resource on, on Earth. So uh, yet another reason why I think terraforming Mars is not a complete waste of time. Um, so it's kind of circling back to what the lower gravity of Mars means. It means, for one thing, that we'll need a taller column of air in order to build up sufficient atmospheric pressure so that, um, for example, the liquid saliva coating our tongues or, you know, um, the liquid coating our eyeballs and the alveoli of our lungs doesn't immediately boil away genuinely unpleasant. So if, if we don't want to walk around in pressure suits forever and ever on the surface of Mars, um, granted that's better than what we're doing now, which is no walking around on Mars, um, you know, there's a significant challenge there because of the lower gravity. Um, and because Mars is a smaller sphere, it's got a higher surface area to volume ratio which means that it cooled off faster. This may explain why Mars no longer has a magnetic field. The magnetic field comes about because in the, the iron core of rocky planets like Earth and Mars, um, the, the core is, is molten. So what happens is, you know, it, it, there's a huge amount of pressure, as a, you know, it, it's very condensed, it's very hot, which means that the molten iron um, will, will rise towards the cooler mantle, sort of the middle, middle part within the, um, it's the, sort of the layer of, of a rocky planet between the 
um, cooled off crust and the molten core. Um, so as the liquid iron rises, um, it, you know, moves towards the cooler mantle, cools off, and you know, sinks back down towards the hotter core, and, and this forms convection. And by some magic that I don't pretend to understand, um, this creates a magnetic field. At least it did in early Mars, and it does today on Earth. Now, what does that mean? Well, we have a magnetosphere, so every time there's a solar flare and there's this huge burst of ionized particles shooting from the sun right at us, um, the the magnetosphere around Earth diverts most of those particles um, so that we're not irradiated by them. That doesn't happen on Mars. And perhaps part of the reason there's, it, it's called a dynamo, that, that convection of, of the molten iron core um, that creates the magnetic, um, the magnetosphere. Sorry, wow, I'm really not making even the slightest amount of sense. Um, so, yeah, the, the reason perhaps that this dynamo no longer exists in Mars is because it's just, it's just cooled off more because it's smaller and has more surface area relative to its volume, um, as tends to happen, right? If you, if you were to heat up um, a, a rubber ball the size of um, a quarter and a rubber ball the size of um, a basketball, right? Um, the, the smaller one will cool off faster, right? Um, it's the same on Mars, and that's perhaps why there's no longer a dynamo and hence no longer a magnetosphere. So um, that's a problem. Uh, so what, what's a long-term solution? Um, I mean, not only are we concerned about being irradiated with every solar flare, but um, it's thought that those those solar winds sort of blew off over time the, the majority of Mars's atmosphere. So if we were to engineer the planet to have a much thicker atmosphere, um, we'd have to think seriously about preserving it long term, um, either by, I don't know, creating a magnetosphere or something. That's it. I mean, that is <laughs> way beyond my depth in terms of, you know, what I can speculate as to what, you know, how do we approach that problem? But it is an, a really interesting problem. How do we retain any atmosphere we create, um, given that there currently is no um, dynamo generated by Mars's core? Um, so with regard to building a thicker atmosphere, um, if all the dry ice that is the um, um, solid form of carbon dioxide from the poles and the regolith of the Martian soil sublimates, goes to the gaseous phase, it, it would increase Mars's atmospheric pressure from less than one kilopascal, like less than 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure at sea level, to like 30 or 60 kilopascals, which is more like what you'd experience as a mountain climber in the, the dead zone, which is about 37 kilopascals, um, where you, you know, these mountain climbers aren't wearing pressure suits, thank goodness, but they do obviously need to breathe canned oxygen. Um, that's still a huge improvement on Mars. Um, I mean, there's another 
question that could be addressed by terraforming is what, if we sublimated all of this dry ice um, into the atmosphere, what would this mean for Mars's surface temperature? And I don't think this is a trivial question. You can calculate the amount of heat energy absorbed by a single molecule of CO2, but it does not scale linearly. Even Earth's atmosphere isn't 100% transparent. So the more air you add to an atmosphere, the less transparent it gets. So each additional molecule of CO2 that you add to an atmosphere, be it Earth or Mars, um, you, you get a diminishing return. And a good real-world example of this is Venus. Um, it has about 30,000 times as much CO2 as Earth, um, but less than twice the warmth in degrees Kelvin despite being closer to the sun. So like I said, it's, it's not um, a linear relationship. X amount of CO2 gives you Y amount of increase in temperature um, in degrees Kelvin. So um, I'm not an atmospheric scientist, and I, I say this so you can take what I'm about to say for what it's worth. Um, I don't think it's clear how much carbon dioxide we would need to add to Mars' atmosphere to achieve a particular surface temperature. But one of the benefits of terraforming Mars is that Mars is smaller and a simpler system. For example, you don't have to worry about how much CO2 the ocean absorbs, because there's no ocean, um, at a given temperature and pressure, and how the water cycle interacts with the carbon cycle, because plants need less water when there's more CO2, et cetera. Um, so on Mars, you can isolate a lot of these variables that exist on Earth and get something resembling empirical data on the relationship between atmosphere, carbon dioxide, and surface temperature, um, which I think would answer a lot. I mean, I realize that a lot of people say that the science is settled, blah, blah, blah. But um, given what I've just laid out, I, it certainly to me that is not at all clear. And I think it would be very helpful to have empirical data that could be yielded by terraforming Mars. Um, I'm not saying that that's the justification for terraforming Mars, um, but I, I don't think it's something we should dismiss. Um, and of course, you know, we could sublimate, or at least attempt to sublimate all of the dry ice on the, on the planet of Mars, um, but, you know, we, we kind of want to save at least some of that carbon for fixation by, you know, life. Um, so another issue is um, oxygen and ozone, because oxygen is probably a little light to be retained by Mars's gravity. And again, I'm no expert on that um, particular issue, so take that for what it's worth. Um, any, any, if, if we were to inject oxygen into Mars's atmosphere, um, an ozone layer would form, but it would be ephemeral for the following reason. Ozone is an unstable molecule of three oxygen atoms strung in a line. Um, each oxygen atom wants to share two additional electrons than what it brings to the table um, to have a complete octet. So usually it'll form a double bond with another oxygen 
atom, or at least a lot of the time it'll do that. Um, or, you know, it'll form a bond with each of two hydrogen atoms to make water. I mean, those are examples of, you know, relatively happy, stable oxygen molecules. Um, ozone's not like that. Um, it means that the middle oxygen is like sharing three electrons on average, and the outer two um, oxygen atoms are sharing one and a half instead of two. Nobody's happy in this arrangement. It's awful. Um, that's why it's unstable. But it, these, these bonds that are formed in ozone, the way they bend and stretch allows them to absorb um, photons, light, at particular energies, that is, wavelengths, including ultraviolet, um, which is why we're, Earth really doesn't see a whole lot of um, UVC and UVB ultraviolet radiation um, and relatively little UVA. Um, so uh, where is it going with this? Um, so the whole point of ozone is that it forms, it's unstable, it absorbs ultraviolet, which gives it enough energy to break, you know, one and a half of those covalent bonds so that it reforms into the more stable oxygen, right? You take two ozone molecules and you irradiate them with UV and you get three relatively stable O2 molecules as a result. But on Mars, they're more likely to reach escape velocity. So that's kind of a losing proposition in the long term. Um, now, I mean, the good news is there are lots of molecules that can absorb UV light in lieu of ozone. For example, DNA is excellent at absorbing UV. That's, that's how we quantify the total amount of DNA in a given sample. Um, I'm not saying that we should see the atmosphere with DNA. I'm just saying that there are lots of molecules out there that can do the job other than ozone. Um, but it's it remains a really interesting problem to solve, right? What relatively heavy, breathable, UV-absorbing molecule would we feed the upper atmosphere of Mars with? And how much would we need to deploy to make the Martian surface habitable for A, anything to survive, or B, enough to survive that life can self-replicate and spread over the entire planet? And this is a good segue um, into the aspect of terraforming that's really my jam, and that's ecopoiesis, um, or the formation of an ecosystem in a lifeless environment. So, I mean, this is where I get so jazzed about the questions that come up. For example, is Martian soil, when supplemented with nitrogenous fertilizer, capable of supporting crops, or is it so oxidized that it's like trying to grow plants on crystallized bleach? Are extremophilic bacteria, archaea, and lichen, I mean, there are extremophilic bacteria, archaea, and lichen that won't immediately die um, under conditions of Martian atmospheric pressure, temperature, and radiation. Um, matter of fact, I work with some of them. It's really cool. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're capable of, of replicating, let alone spreading across the planet and altering the atmosphere as photosynthetic organisms did during the Archean period on Earth. Um, although, to be fair, that took over a billion years before the amount of atmospheric oxygen that they made um, really, really made shit real. Um, <laughs> I have no filter when I'm tired. Um, 
so what other questions come up with um, the challenge of ecopoiesis, right? The idea is that you've got these tiny little machines that self-replicate and change the planet for you so you don't have to, right? That's what life does. Um, it adapts and tends to, on, on a global scale, tends to alter the, the planetary habitat to be more habitable. Um, so what are the limits of genetic engineering um, to stretch the survivability of extreme files? For example, um, there's a lot of research being done on extremophiles and, and on what genes and what biochemical processes they engage in to help them survive really ridiculously extreme environments. Um, we can circle back to the DNA and make tweaks to perhaps make them even better at surviving extreme environments. And what's the real limit of that? Nobody has any idea, and it's a really important and interesting question. I mean, it, it redounds on our own survival and our own adaptability. You know, it, it relates to human aging. How do we ameliorate that so we're indefinitely useful? I mean, it's a really profound and interesting question. Um, it, what genetic and organismic landscape would be most effective to transform, transform the planet? Um, what is the minimum amount of geochemical input we would need to make this go, you know, to, you know, get the planet started so that we could, you know, spread out these self-replicating machines we call life to do the rest of the job for us? Um, what's the most time and energy efficient way of, of doing this? Should we spread black dust over the poles to lower the albedo and have more sunlight absorbed by the, on the dry ice? Should we shoot ammonia laden asteroids at the poles to explode a bunch of carbon dioxide and cat pee smell into the atmosphere? I mean, literally, that's what it would be. Um, what kind of super greenhouse gases could we manufacture and in what quantities? Um, and, you know, how much of different super greenhouse gas molecules would be required to get us, you know, where we want to go, whether that's like, you know, the top of Mount Everest or exactly like Earth or, you know, some, who knows, right? Um, you know, things change a lot depending on where you define your goal, but I think anywhere you do poses a lot of really interesting um, and fundamental questions. You know, what, what do we do about creating a magnetosphere so we don't have to worry about solar flares and galactic cosmic radiation. What, what really is the effect of galactic cosmic radiation on, on life? I mean, it, it's really not trivial to simulate um, the kind of radiation you get when you kind of get outside Earth's ionosphere. Um, so it, it's, not, it's, it's not well known how that affects living things. Um, that's still a very, a, an area that's very ripe for research. Okay, I need to take a breath. Um, so I hope I've at least posed some questions to pique your interest and um, at least make something of a case for why grand undertaking would be, would be valuable. Um, and to say nothing of the fact that 
you know, more nice places to live are better than fewer. Now, I'm not using this to make like a cost-benefit analysis. Just, I mean, I, I get the sense that most people aren't nearly as intrigued by space exploration and engineering as I am, and I'm genuinely flummoxed by it. So hopefully I've given some reason to convince you why at least some weirdo like me might might be interested in it. Um, so I need to shut up. Um, so I'll just end by saying that um, I miss you, Corey, and um, I, I'm not really sure what else to say. I, I, hope, I hope you're hearing this and not completely hating it. Um, so, yeah. Um, with that, I'll close and say cheers to reason. Go, go send Corey your love. And um, that's it. Have, have a good rest of your week. <laughs>